Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise And it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, please enjoy the podcast. Do you have a question? question I've always had about the Bible is, are miracles and the ability to perform miracles possible in this day and age? Do you have a question? Is the Bible inerrant? Can we trust the Word of God? What did Jesus mean when he said, judge not that you be not judged? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Does God know with absolute certainty what will be the free will choices of men and women? What is legalism? Can a Christian lose their salvation? Can God ever change his mind? Could Jesus have sinned? If and when a baby dies, do they go to heaven? Are Christians obligated to tithe? Should all Christians speak in tongues? What can we know about the existence and activity of Satan? Are demons real? What can we know about angels? Can a Christian be demonized? Will people that have never heard the name of Jesus be condemned for not believing in him? Are miracles and the ability to perform miracles possible in this day and age? Do you have a question? Hello, friends. Welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. That very special opening is reserved for one person and one person only, and that's Dr. Sam Storms. That opening also gives you a big hint that this hour we're going to take any question you have on the Bible or Christianity, questions only. And if you've joined us before when we had these conversations with the Dr. Storms, and I hope you have, you know how popular this hour is and how much we get such good, sound, biblical doctrine and theology from Dr. Sam Storm. So you're going to need this, 877-548-3675. Any question you have on the Bible and Christianity, fair warning, the lines light up. They stay lit for most of the hour. So when you hear me say goodbye to a caller, that's your opportunity to join into the conversation. 877-548-3675. Let me give the formal introduction to our dear friend, Dr. Storms. He is now Pastor Emeritus 
Oaks of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He's also the founder of Enjoying God Ministries. In 2008, he became the lead pastor for preaching and vision at Bridgeway, and he stepped down then in 2022 into the next chapter of his life where he's doing speaking and writing and I'm so thankful, still making time to be on In the Market, which I greatly appreciate. Boy, his curriculum vitae is impressive. He serves as a member of the Council of the Gospel Coalition. He's the past president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He was for many years an associate professor of theology at Wheaton College. He is a prolific author, and it is from that wellspring of his writing that we drew this idea of opening the phones and letting you ask any question. I wish I could tell you I came up with the idea. I'm not smart enough. Dr. Storms is. So he put together 25 challenging questions that a good teaching pastor hears often and decided he would offer some sound doctrine. He would hold out the word of life and answer clearly and biblically those 25 questions. Well, the book was so popular, he went on to do a second book called Tough Topics 2. So when you go to our information page, you're going to see Tough Topics 2. But don't forget, There's a precursor book, and it's simply Tough Topics. But if you go to his website, which we've also put at the bottom of the page, you can click that on. You'll see a vast library of books that he's written and articles as well, all so that you can better contend for the faith. And that's what this hour is all about. Well, speaking of contending for the faith, my dear friend Sam, that's exactly where I get to start. Privilege of the chair. I get the first question as our friends are lying up. My husband and I spent the weekend digging around in the book of Jude, and I just love this short, very powerful book. And maybe it's because it's so reflective of the days and the times in which we live and how false teachers are still very much among us, or in the words of Jude, Jesus' half-brother, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. Again, could be ripped from the headlines today. But when you get into this book, there's a fascinating chapter, a reference rather, to something historical that is, in my understanding, not referenced anywhere else in Scripture. And as Jude is going on, clearly identifying these dreamers um, polluting their own bodies, and he's, I mean, he doesn't hold back at all. He just has every chamber full and he's firing all the bullets. But he says this. But even the archangel Michael, so here's a hierarchy of angelology. There's an archangel. His name is Michael. But then he says, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. I find it interesting. Michael, the archangel, doesn't do the rebuking. He says in the name of the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. So there's a whole bunch of really good stuff in just this couple of uh, verses. First of all, what, there's no other place in the Bible is this mentioned about there being an argument about what to do with the body of Moses. Talk to me about that. Well, you're right. This is the only reference to it. Um, and I, that shouldn't surprise us. The Spirit of God in um, providing the revelation that comp- that comprises the many books of the New Testament can bring to their minds events that may not have been included in the Old Testament. But the question people, and I guess you're asking it as well, is why was there a dispute over the body of Moses? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think probably Satan's intent um, may have been one of two or both. Maybe he wanted to uh, somehow preserve the body of Moses so that the people of Israel would revere it and turn it into an idol, very much like the golden calf, and turn their worship away from the one true God. Or it may be that he wanted to uh, obtain it in order to keep it from the dignity of burial and somehow desecrate it in some way. 
Um, but we, we don't really know. Those are just two of the possibilities that have come to my mind as I've thought about this over the years. Um, so, yeah, it, it is interesting, too, that Michael defers to the Lord. He says, it, it's a, you know, Michael and, and uh, people oftentimes mistakenly think that Satan and God are the kind of these co-rivals. Right, right. They're not. Michael is the co-rival of Satan. God, obviously, is infinitely superior to both. Um, but Michael here does not presume upon any authority and defers to the Lord. Now, I've had, I've had Christians ask me, does that mean that we can't rebuke Satan or demonic beings? And I don't think that's the case, because I think we see evidence in the New Testament that we have, this may sound strange to some, we have an authority that I don't necessarily think God has invested in the angelic hosts. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus said in Luke 10, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. And in Ephesians 1, we're told that uh, all principalities and powers, which refers to Satan and his demons, have been put under the feet of Jesus, and we have been enthroned with him and are seated at the right hand of the Father. So given the fact that Jesus rebukes demons in the Gospels, and I think we have the uh, reasonable belief that we can do the same, I wouldn't use this text to say that, uh, that we should never rebuke Satan. However, having said that, let us not be arrogant Let's remember who our enemy is. He's incredibly powerful and wicked. And um, if, if people have any second thoughts about this, there's nothing wrong with deferring to the Lord and just simply saying, the Lord Jesus himself rebuke you. Mm, wow. Oh, Sam, I love it when you come. Such richness breathed into just those couple of verses. Thank you. And in the meantime, every single line is lit. So that's it. That was my question. When we come back, you take it from here, friends. Your questions for Dr. Sam Storms on the Bible and Christianity. It's going to be a great hour. Glad you're with us. Back after this. The truths of the Christian faith are powerfully clear and wonderfully deep, but sometimes we don't fully understand what we believe. That's why I've chosen I Believe, a concise guide to the essentials of the Christian faith as this month's Truth Tool. Know the foundations of faith and reinvigorate your walk with Jesus. Ask for your copy of I Believe when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58, that's 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. What a privilege to spend the hour with Dr. Sam Storms, Pastor Emeritus of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, founder of Enjoying God Ministries and a terrific author. Every line is lit. Back to the phones. And when you hear me say goodbye, remember, just use 877-548-3675 as the number for you to join into the conversation. Scott from Indiana, I welcome you. Thanks for being here. And your first up, your question, please. Thank you. In the book of Revelation, it describes heaven as having 12 gates, I believe guarded by 12 angels, and it says outside the gates are the dogs, and it says no one who is not pure will enter heaven. I was wondering, can we go out of heaven and then back in, or how does that work? Not that we want to leave, but, and that's it. Um, No, I do not believe that uh, anybody who has been granted entrance into the new Jerusalem in the new heavens, new earth, will ever have any inclination whatsoever to depart. I think God will keep us secure there. I think his point in that uh, is simply this, you know, he says in uh, 2127, nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So he's trying to express the truth that uh, the, the new heavens and the new Jerusalem in which we will live is a place of holiness, 
a place where only the people of God are granted entrance, that we need not fear corruption or any kind of uh, any kind of um, uh, disintegration or threat to our welfare and our happiness there. So I don't think he's saying that, um, you know, if you're in if you're in the New Jerusalem and you lie, you do some detestable thing, you'll be on the outside because those who are on the inside have been glorified. They've received their resurrection bodies. They've uh, been delivered from their sin nature. And as Paul says in Philippians 3, our bodies are made like unto that of Jesus himself. So we will be incapable of sin in the New Jerusalem. And therefore, the threat of being cast outside is not possible. Thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate your being a part of this. I move now to Alabama. And Gina joins us. uh, Gina, thank you for being with us. Your question, please. Hey, I've just got a quick question concerning um, there's a denomination that believes that the Jews are not God's chosen people, and they also uh, feel that um, based on Joshua 23:16, um, speaking about the land covenant, it would not be fulfilled because of their basically, um, you know, turning away from God, the Egyptians, I mean, the Israelites turning away from God. So I want your interpretation of that. And also, if you could speak to um, Jesus reigning in the millennial. And I'll hang up sure. and listen for your answer. Thank you, sure. Gina. Before you go, Gina, before you go, yes. are you willing to name the denomination that you say does not believe the Jews were God's chosen people? Um. You don't have to. I just certain, don't worry about it. Yeah, Did COC, you? COC, some COC denominations. Okay. Church of Christ denominations. Yeah. Okay, I understand. Not wanting to offend. Not wanting to offend, but I mean, it's something that's sure, been a conversation with me recently. Sure. Well, I don't know how anybody could deny that the descendants of Abraham are the chosen people of God. I mean, he says in Deuteronomy 7, I have chosen you from among all the nations of the earth, and I've loved you out of all of the peoples that I've made. And, of course, we know that um, the covenants that God has made are unbreakable. Now, as far as the the passage you're referring to in Joshua, um, there are numerous texts in the Old Testament which seem to indicate one of two things, either that the land promised to Israel has been fulfilled or that the land promise has been revoked. The problem with both of those is that in many subsequent texts, in other words, you go on and read beyond the time of Joshua in the the major and the minor prophets, uh, and you find multiple references to the covenant promises still in effect, and the fact that they will will be totally and completely fulfilled. Now, the question uh, that divides Christians, um, I think more than anything else, is in what way and how will... Uh, this fulfillment take place. Some think, as you've referenced, that it will take place in the 1,000-year millennial period when Jesus reigns from Jerusalem. Others think that it will take place in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, I tend to embrace the latter view. Um, I think the important point to remember is this. The promise of God dwelling with his people, both Jew and Gentile, anybody who is a believer in Jesus, in the land, on the earth, is a vital part of biblical eschatology. There's simply no way to get around it. I mean, Jesus himself said, the meek shall inherit the earth. So we know that the land promises will be fulfilled, whether it's on this earth in its unredeemed condition in a 1,000-year millennial reign, or whether it's on the new earth 
when it is glorified and uh, and rid of all sin and corruption, that's the issue that divides Christian theologians. But I don't know how anybody can say that um, God doesn't have a covenant with the Jewish people. I mean, you have to read Romans uh, 3 and Romans 9, where Paul says to them have been given the covenants. Um, and so it seems to me pretty clear. What I believe is, is that believing Gentiles have now been included in that covenant. Uh, the issue now isn't so much the blood in your veins, but the faith in your heart. Mm. So that's why Paul can talk, call uh, believing Gentiles the sons of Abraham in uh, in Galatians chapter 3. Now, that's a long answer to a very complicated <laughs> question, but I hope it helped a little bit. And the second part was Jesus' role in the millennium. Yeah. Um, well, again, here's here's the difference. For premillennialists, uh, they are those who believe— that Jesus will reign supremely over the earth and over a restored Jewish nation and uh, the Church of Jesus Christ for a thousand years subsequent to his second coming. For the amillennialist, Jesus is reigning now in the millennium because they believe the millennium is the reign of Christ from heaven right now between the two comings, between his first and second coming, and they don't believe that there will be a thousand years subsequent to the second return of Christ. They believe that when Christ returns, he'll introduce the new heavens and the new earth. So again, it all depends on your view of eschatology, whether you're premillennial or amillennial, uh, as to how you will answer the question, in what way will Jesus reign? Hmm. Gina, thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. We're going to take a break and return right back to the phones. Again, our number is 877-548-3675. Our topic, any question you have about the Bible or Christianity, you can tell even if this is your first time you've heard Dr. Sam Storms, what an excellent and eloquent teacher he is. So if there's a passage of scripture that you've been stuck on or you really wanted something more like I did with that passage in Jude, this is a great time to ask Dr. Sam Storms. 877-548-3675. This is In the Market with Janet Parshall. We get to spend the hour with Dr. Sam Storms, wonderful pastor, writer, author, and we're taking your questions. Actually, he's taking your questions, any question you've got on the Bible and Christianity. And there are some excellent questions here. I turn next to Tennessee. That's where Gloria is. Gloria, thanks for joining us. And now your question, please. Hey, I just wanted to ask. So um, obviously people who have never heard of the name of Jesus will have to be judged differently. So wouldn't it be best for missionaries not to go to the end of the world? Because once they hear about Jesus, then they are doomed to hell. Thank you. Sure, Gloria. Yeah, that's a question that uh, plagues a lot of Christian minds and hearts. So let me make something really clear. I would first would encourage you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 1 and read verses 18 through 21. Because there Paul says that people who have never heard the name of Jesus are still held accountable by God for the revelation that he has made of himself in the natural creation. Paul says the invisible attributes of God, his existence, his power, have been clearly seen in the things that are made. His point is you can look around the world, you see the beauty and the, and the design of uh, the natural realm, uh, even in the human conscience. And Paul says this renders all of them without excuse. That is one of the most important phrases in the Bible. I think it's Romans 1.21. So they are without excuse. So the point is that 
they will not enter into the kingdom of God, not for having rejected Jesus, about whom they've never heard, but for having rejected the revelation of God the Father in the natural creation. They lose any, they can't stand before God at the final judgment and say, hey, you didn't send a missionary to me and I didn't hear the name of Jesus, therefore I get off, I'm off the hook. You can't judge me. God says, no, you are held accountable for the way you did not receive with gratitude the revelation I made of myself in the natural order. So I do believe that it is absolutely essential for missionaries to take the gospel in the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth, because without it, um, no soul can be saved. Mm -hmm. So I hope that helps. Again, just read Romans 1, 18 through about verse 21, and that should clear this up for you. Thank you, Gloria. Such an important question. Next to Florida, Chris, thank you for being here. And your question for Dr. Sam Storms, please. This is an easy one, I think. <laughs> I'm just wondering, <laughs> why is it that men were allowed to have more than one wife back in the old days? And now, of course, we're supposed to have just one spouse. And, you know, in reading the Bible, there's just never an area where it says, okay, you know, this was the reason why we did that, or, and obviously I know for procreation, however, why was sure. it accepted by God? Well, will it surprise you, Chris, to know that I have six wives? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Push the lead on that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I have one precious wife of 52 years, and um, she has been a blessing to me. Um, we need to remember that in the Old Testament, God revealed his perfect ethical will for mankind progressively, not all at once. You, don't, you can't go to the book of Genesis or Exodus or even Joshua or Judges and read a full-orbed delineation of God's highest ideal for mankind. He met the people of Israel in their own historical context amidst all of the other nations of the earth, which during those times they were all polygamists as far as I know. And so he tried to put boundaries on polygamy. In other words, there were guidelines on how to treat your wife or wives. But as we progress through the Bible and we, we get a clearer and more complete and more exhaustive revelation of God's will for mankind, especially in the New Testament, oh, now we see that God's perfect will is for one man and one woman. Jesus made that very clear uh, when he was challenged about the, uh, the question of divorce. And, of course, in, uh, you know, you think, for example, of 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications for an elder. He must be a one-woman man. <laughs> in other mm. words, he can't be divided in his affections or his commitment to more than one. So, again, it's, a, it's an issue of uh, the progressive, less-than-ideal uh, revelation of God during the time of the Old Testament and the more exhaustive and perfect ethic of God that comes to about when we read the New Testament. So I mm. hope that helps. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate your being a part of the conversation. 877-548-3675. And let me go to Charlene, who joins us from Wisconsin. Welcome. Your question, please. Yes, hi there. I, I'm taking a Sunday school class on the Old Testament. And our the leader of the class insists on calling Israel Palestine. And it's very confusing because I think of it as Israel. And I, I listen to different programs and they call it Israel I don't want to argue with the leader of the Bible study. Um, what is, is it okay to call it Palestine, or what is the definition of, the, of Israel or Palestine? You know, that's a great question. I've often wondered that myself. Uh, my good friend Michael Brown has written extensively on this. 
So I would encourage you to Google the name of Dr. Michael Brown, and the program is called The Line of Fire. And I remember reading his explanation of why we do not call the Holy Land Palestine. Um, In fact, I think, if I'm not, and I could be wrong on this, Janet, but I think that the word Palestine is a, is a is derived from Philistine. It is. Mm-hmm. Uh, who were the enemies of Israel. That's right. Um, and so it was something of a derogatory reference to the land used by Israel's enemies. So, no, I do not think it's appropriate to refer to the land of Israel as Palestine. Um, but again, uh, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, my good friend Michael Brown has written extensively on it, and I think he can help you with that if you'll go to his website. Mm-hmm. Let me just echo Sam's uh, affirmation of Michael. He's a great teacher, by the way, so I would definitely look him up, and he has written prolifically on this. Thank you for being a part of the conversation. Let me take a break and come right back. I'm, oh, I say goodbye, and the line fills up. I'm so glad. It's just affirmation to me that you just love Dr. Storms as much as I do and that this topic gets you thinking critically and biblically, and that's great. Back after this. There are dozens of talk shows that address politics, culture, and technology, but In the Market is committed to bringing biblical truth to every facet of life. When you financially support In the Market as a partial partner, you're helping people to better understand how their faith intersects with their daily lives. Become a partial partner today and receive exclusive benefits prepared just for you. Call 877-JANET-58 or go online to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. If you're just joining us, welcome. We're talking to Dr. Sam Storms, Pastor Emeritus of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He's also the founder of Enjoying God Ministries, and he's a wonderfully prolific author and teacher. And we're taking your questions on the Bible and Christianity. Any question you've got at 877-548-3675, 877-548-3675. I'm looking at my board here, calls from all across the country and such thoughtful questions. I am so glad. Taylor, I'm turning to you next in Ohio. Welcome. Your question, please. Hi, Janet. Thank you for taking my call. So mm-hmm. I just want to say I'm not a universalist, but um, I had I had I had a question about um, Taylor. If you'll t- Taylor, turn your radio down if you'd be so kind, because it'll talk at a different pace than I do. I see that. There you go. So, so I wanted to. Yep. So I wanted to ask um, if, when Adam sinned, it affected all human beings after him. Then why doesn't when Jesus dying on the cross and raising on the third day, why doesn't that affect all human beings after that? So I'm referencing like First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, when it talks about for all in Adam died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. So I'm just curious, like why doesn't that his death, burial, and resurrection cause us all to be saved? since we were all infected and dying because of Adam's sin. Thanks for the answer. I appreciate sure. it. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the answer ultimately has to fall back on God's sovereign will for the salvation of the people whom he has chosen. And it is true that the whole of the human race, we read about this in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, the whole of the human race was in a covenant relationship with Adam, such that what he did, they are reckoned to have done, and they suffer the consequences of it. That's why David said in Psalm 
excuse me, Psalm 51, I was conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity. And of course, that's true of all of us. But it is not God's sovereign will for every single human being ultimately to be saved. Now, you might push back and say, wait a minute, what is it saying that God wishes that or desires that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth? Well, that's true, but we have to differentiate between God's desire and his sovereign secret will. So evidently, there is a purpose in the heart of our Heavenly Father to save a people for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he unites them in covenant with him, such that his death for them uh, brings the benefits of righteousness. But that death does not automatically go to all people. Sure, Adam's sin goes automatically to all men and women, but the death of Christ only comes to those whom the Father has chosen to be in Christ and to receive the benefits of his sufferings and of his resurrection. Now, again, if you push, people push back. I understand, I understand the argument and the difficulty of this. They say, well, wait a minute. Why wouldn't God work in such a way so as to save every single human being? Well, there are usually two answers to that. Some say the only way he could do it would be to violate the free will of people who simply don't want him and who refuse to be saved and want nothing to do with Christ. Others say that it's because God believes that his greatest glory can be seen not only in saving a people, the elect, but also in manifesting his justice and wrath against those whom he passed over. So it's a difficult question. Why hasn't God saved all if he could? Of course, some say, well, maybe he can't because of free will. Others say, no, he could. He is just in his own secret purpose has chosen not to. That's a question that we're going to have to sit down with the Lord and wrestle with him uh, once we sit are in his presence, because it's a very challenging issue, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and uh, it's not one that we can ultimately resolve in this life. Yeah, exactly. Can I pick up on this? Because, Taylor, I think your question is really good, and I think it's really important. So you didn't use the word, but I think you're implying, Sam, about the concept of predestination. And Dr. Norman Geiser wrote a wonderful book on this, Chosen But Free. But I also think it's we tend to very often say it's an either-or, but it could be a both-end. So then by man came death, okay? As a result of Adam's sin, all of us find ourselves in a sinful condition. But Let's go back to John three sixteen. Where is my individual responsibility in this? If we talk about God so living the world that he gave his only begotten son, that here's my responsibility, my opportunity, my choice, whosoever believes in him. Now, I understand the overlayment of predestination on that, but there's still, because I have free will, the opportunity, the responsibility to choose or reject, is there not? Absolutely. They're, they're, these are two truths that run along parallel tracks. They do not conflict with each other. Hmm. We are responsible for, for uh, answering the call of the gospel. And Jesus said very clearly, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But he also says to others, many of the religious leaders in his day, um, you will not come to me that you might have life. So clearly, man is morally accountable for the decision he makes when confronted with the gospel. And yet, at the same time, God is completely sovereign in knowing who will and who will not do so. And I know that a lot of Christians say those can't, that's like saying two plus two equals five. It, it just it's a square circle. It's a contradiction. Well, no, it isn't. And the reason I know it isn't is because both are taught in Scripture. It's a mystery that ultimately the Lord Himself will have to resolve and uh, and answer when we stand before Him. But right now, 
it's it's one that really transcends the uh, the intellect of human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Taylor, thank you so much. Appreciate your being with us. 877-548-3675. Let me go to James, who joins us from Georgia. Welcome, James. Your question, please. Yes, thank you. Um, I was wondering, uh, after the building of the Tower of Babel, uh, God said, let us go down there and confound the people. And I understand the confounding the, the languages, but is there significance to the fact that he went down to earth to do it rather than doing it from heaven? Well, I, again, we have a lot of these kinds of references. For example, earlier in Genesis, it says that God walked in the garden during the, the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. Well, we know that God doesn't have a body, but obviously he's trying to communicate through human terms how God relates to us in this life. So he used what we call an anthropomorphism. So the idea of God coming down, it emphasizes a couple of things. Number one, that he is high and above us and transcendent. It emphasizes the fact that any attempt on the part of man to reach up to him by his own efforts, you know, here's the tower. We're going we're gonna to ascend to the highest places. We're going to become like God. And God's basically looking down on them and saying, no, I don't think so. Uh, so many times, you know, we have statements in the Psalms that God looked down on the children of men to see if there were any who were righteous, and there was not even one. So the the, the idea of this geographical up-down uh, is not to be pressed literally as if God isn't all so on the earth. He was obvious. He's omnipresent. He was on the earth in the very midst of their building the Tower of Babel, but he's also in heaven. He's everywhere simultaneously. And the point of saying he came down, I think, is to indicate that God is transcendent, he is the king over all, and he will not tolerate the efforts of sinful men to somehow, by their own efforts, work their way up to his presence. Hmm. Thank you so much, James. Appreciate you being a part of the conversation as well. 877-548-3675. Zachary in Indiana, thank you for being here. Your question, please. Uh God bless you guys for the wonderful way you guys are. Uh, I have a question. My question is coming from the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Uh, the question is actually taken from uh, verse 20, where the Bible says, Pray that your flight doesn't take place in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. So for the winter, I understand that part because... Uh, Winter is kind of crazy weather, snow, cold, and all that. That part I understand. But why did he use Sabbath day as another a day of uh, uh, difficulty for such a day? Why, why did he use Sabbath day as a bad day to uh, for our flight to, to take off? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Janet, I didn't quite understand the question. The, my my connection is a little bit garbled. Can you help me with this? I can. Zachary, thank you so much. So he's making a reference to Matthew 4.20 about the verse that means that we will suffer. So I think, Zachary, if I understand your question correctly, it's being called into suffering. And what does that mean? Uh, Matthew, right, so Matthew chapter 24. 24. 24. And is it verse 20, oh, Zachary? Yeah. Okay, 2420. I'm sorry. 2420. Okay, I'm looking at it right now. And that it, uh, I think it must be another verse because that's the one that says, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on okay. a Sabbath. All right, Zachary, again, give us the right. passage, please. 
Right. My question is, uh, why why did you use Sabbath day as a day of uh, difficulty? Uh, for the winter, I understand that part, uh-huh. because it's going to be with, uh, cold and all that. But why yeah. did you use Sabbath day as a bad day for our running and all that? Got it. So winter, why the reference to winter, and why is that a bad reference? Well, um, I think the immediate application of that text is with regard to the assault on the city of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And I think his point is, he's saying, just pray that uh, this attack doesn't happen during the winter because it's much more difficult to escape and to flee uh, when the weather's bad. The same thing, he says, pray that it doesn't happen on a Sabbath because you would then be put in the awkward position of violating the commandment of God about not traveling on the Sabbath day. So I think he's talking directly to the people who were going to suffer the consequences of the, the Roman armies laying siege to Jerusalem. And he's just simply saying, just pray that uh, when the day comes that you have to flee to save your lives, that it isn't either during bad weather or on a Sabbath day. Mm. Now, I don't know if that answers his question, but that's how I've always understood that verse. Zachary, I do hope we understood the question, and I hope that that answer helps a lot. Thank you again for being with us. 877-548-3675. Last break. Back to the phones when we return. Dr. Sam Storms is with us. He's Pastor Emeritus at Bridgeway Church in uh, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, founder of Enjoying God Ministries and a wonderful author. Don't forget, I've got a link to Tough Topics 2 on my information page on the website. And I've also got a link to Sam's website where he has just an abundance of pieces for you to read and more reference to his books as well. Perry, thank you for joining me from Alabama. Your question, please. Yes, I've been saved and I live my life for Christ, but I'm a sinner. And what if I die before I have time to repent for my sin that I committed, and then I go to heaven, will I be accepted into the gates of heaven? Yes, that's a, that's a question and an issue that plagues a lot of people and creates a lot of very unnecessary fear and anxiety. So here's the point. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that if you die without having confessed and repented of every single sin, that somehow you'll be excluded from the kingdom of God. It's nowhere found in the Bible. Uh, When you put your faith in Jesus, when you repented of your sins and trusted him, his life, death, and resurrection on your behalf, you were immediately justified in the sight of God, and you are eternally secure in God's love. So the fact of the matter is, there are, my guess is there are countless, maybe thousands and tens of thousands of Christians who have perhaps had a lustful thought, or they committed a minor act of theft, or they uh, spoke uh, in a derogatory way of another uh, person, and then died in a car accident, or had a heart attack, or uh, fell into a coma before they were able to confess and repent. But if they truly trusted in Jesus, they are going to be in heaven without any question whatsoever. So let me just put your fears to rest you don't have to. You still need to be diligent, as we all do, whenever we sin. Spirit of God, awaken my heart to that. Bring conviction. Help me confess it and repent of it. But you need not worry that if for some reason you should die before that happens, that you will be eternally lost. That is not true. So don't, don't be anxious about that any longer. Mm, thank you, Perry. Aaron, I welcome you from Ohio. Your question, please. 
Hey, um, my question is how to explain the Trinity to somebody that doesn't understand. Hmm. <laughs> well, if somebody would explain the Trinity to me, Aaron, I think I'd try to explain it to you. But, uh, you know, uh, the great St. Augustine once said, um, try to understand the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Deny the Trinity and you'll lose your soul. <laughs> so it is one of the most profound mysteries of the faith. The best way I know how to explain it is this. God is one in essence, but three in person. And the mistake is trying to say that, well, if he's three in person, that means there must be three essences or three divine natures. Well, that's, that's polytheism. That's a belief in multiple gods. No, there's only one God, but he exists eternally in three co-equal persons. The Father is God, but he's not the Son. The Son is God, but he's not the Father or the Spirit. The Spirit is God, but he's not the Son or the Father. So they are one God who subsist eternally in three co-equal persons. Um, I think, Janet, it's in my book, Tough Topics, that I address this at length, mm-hmm. uh, about how can God be one and three without uh, you know, us blowing our minds and breaking the rules of logic. <laughs> so again, here's the, here's the key, Aaron. The sense in which God is one is different from the sense in which he is three. He is three in person, but one in nature or one in essence. And beyond that, you know, you, you'll spend a lot of time trying to decipher that, and you might, you might go nuts. But don't do that. Just say, I believe what the Bible teaches about the triunity of God, and I'll have to trust the Lord to explain that to me when I see him. Yeah, yeah. But again, if you want an expansive response to this, Aaron, Tough Topics, the first of the books dealing with these 25 challenging questions. Dr. Sam Storms has written more in depth on that topic. But thank you for a great question. Evan, I turn to you next in Tennessee. Welcome. Your question, please. Hey, Janet, love your show. I have a question about Revelation 9-6, where the trumpet's been blown and there's there's a judgment. It says that people will long to die, but death will flee from them. What do you think that means? Well, I, I think that in the face of the magnitude of the wrath of God that is being poured out, there will be a desire to escape it. Um, they will, I'm looking at it, in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. I think it's just the uh, John's way of saying that there's going to be such intense tribulation, wrath, and judgment that falls on the unbelievers of the earth that they will, in one sense, long to die, to escape it, but that the means by which they can accomplish that will be held from them and be kept from them. Um, Now, exactly how that works out in each individual's existence and experience, I don't know. Um, But it's just John's way of really emphasizing the, the horrible nature of being an unbeliever and being subject to the wrath of God that's going to come with the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Hmm. Thank you, Evan. Great question. And on that note, I think it's appropriate to turn to Linda, who joins us from Ohio. Linda, thank you for being here. And your question, please. Um, I wanted to ask if everyone would be saved. I recently heard something like everyone will be saved after they go through hell or, you know, that it will be just because God is just. But will everyone be saved? Linda, I believe the Bible's answer to that question is no. Now, as much as we might want it to be yes, um, the simple fact of the matter is 
that uh, there's no indication in Scripture that people will be in hell for only a season of time. You know, the people think of it in terms of, of uh, you know, they, they will be in hell in order to suffer for their sins, but after they've sufficiently suffered, God will bring them into heaven. That might be something we wish would happen, but it's just not taught in Scripture. The fact of the matter is, not all will be saved. God will be seen as just in every instance. God is not unjust to any. He's merciful to some, and He's just to others. So pray for the lost souls, evangelize them, share the gospel, knowing that not all will be saved. And therefore, the urgency of evangelism for us, I think, is greatly heightened. Mm, mm. Exclamation point, Sam. What an excellent note to end our conversation on. Linda, thank you for that thought-provoking question. Let me just get some resources out in front of you again. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll about a third of the way down the page. You're going to see program details and audio. Click that red box on. It'll take you to the information page. There's a longer bio for Dr. Sam Storms. Below the bio is a link to his website. A ton of information there, including your exposure to many of the other books that he's authored and multiple articles as well. But on the right-hand side, in keeping with the theme of what we just did, there's Tough Topics 2, 25 Challenging Questions, and Dr. Storms gives these beautifully succinct biblical answers like you've heard all hour. But don't forget also, there's also Tough Topics. So there's Tough Topics and Tough Topics 2. I commend both to you. They're outstanding. My heartfelt thanks to Dr. Storms and you, friends. We'll see you next time.